What a lovely name, the name of Jesus. Praise the Lord. One day we'll see him face to face, too, and we can call his name. We're in a series called Taking What Belongs to Us. Title of this, The Walls Must Fall. It's about the walls of Jericho, one of the stories most everybody remembers in the Bible. Uh, we're going to go through it today and see what it says to us about our life and our situation. So let's start at Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. They'd battened down the hatches there, Jericho. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Going down to little father, it says, this is what happened. So the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, it's Rahab the harlot, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Many here have served in the military. Many of you served on the battlefield. And you weren't sure if you were going to make it home to ever see your family and your country again. And for that, we thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your service. I was thinking about some of the most famous battles in American history, battles that helped shape our country. I don't know what's being taught in school today. Probably history's been changed because a lot of uh, liberals look at America as just a big bully that got wealthy off the backs of slaves, off the backs of pl uh, pillaging other countries, and stripping them of their goods and their possessions, and that's what made us big and great. I don't believe that. I believe we were founded on the principles of God's Word. But a lot of people, I'm not sure what, how they teach history today, but I'm going to talk to you for just, about, uh, for just a moment about some battles in American history, some of the most famous battles ever. The Battle of Lexington and Concord began April 19, 1775. This was a big one because this was really the beginning of the Revolutionary War. They were leaving Boston to go up there and start confiscating the weapons of the people in Massachusetts and the uh, militia. And they had formed a militia, a, a Minuteman army, what, so to speak. And sometime while the, uh, the British were going up there, somebody fired a shot. They said it was a shot heard around the world because it was the beginning of the war pretty much. And uh, we know how it worked out. There were 18,000 British troops totaled over here. They were wanting us to pay taxes to Great Britain, and we were wanting to break free from them. Uh, 250 British soldiers were killed that day and wounded, 19 British officers, and we lost 90, but it gave us the courage to say, we're going to fight for our independence. 
Another very big battle is the end of the Revolutionary War. It was the siege at Yorktown. That was the last great battle. It took place from September 28th to October the 19th, 1781. It was at Yorktown where the British general, Cornwallis, surrendered. And uh, they wrote the Treaty of Paris there, us, France, and uh, us. They were our ally in this. And we were independent after that great battle. Thank God for that. Somebody said if we wouldn't have broke free from Great Britain, we'd be all having a spot of tea every afternoon, and we'd be saying things like cheerio and driving on the wrong side of the road. Anyway, thank the Lord we're free. Uh, the Battle of Gettysburg, Civil War, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, probably the bloodiest battle of all in the Civil War. The South led by Robert E. Lee, the North by General Meade. It was a terrible battle, 46,000 casualties. The weapons used were revolvers, rifles, bayonets, cannons, and swords. During that time or right after that time, they invited uh, President Lincoln was in the area, and they invited him to speak at some kind of rally or something they were having. And the guy that invited him, I can't even remember his name, but he got up there and gave a speech that lasted almost two hours. And then finally he turned it over to President Lincoln to speak, and President Lincoln spoke two minutes. I think it was 272 or 276 words called the Gettysburg Address, one of the most famous speeches in American history. Uh, the other guy, nobody even knows who he was or what he said. So the answer is don't talk so long. Ain't that right? Okay. <clears throat> the invasion of Normandy, June 6, 1944, took place in World War II, Normandy, France. The United States, with its allies, Great Britain, Canada, and France, stormed the beaches about June 6th. It was a turning point in World War II. The Allied troops were led by President Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, it was a time when a, they were running into enemy fire. Young men. We owe a great debt. Can you imagine what the world would have been if Hitler would have had his way? Where would any of us be? It was a very powerful thing. America lost 2,501 troops. Great Britain lost 1,449. Canada lost 391 and 73 from the other allied countries. We owe a great deal. There's a lot of great famous battles in war. Fort Sumter, beginning of the Civil War in South Carolina. Remember the Alamo, the Battle of Midway, Battle of Bunker Hill. Some of you Vietnam vets, Hamburger Hill, the fall of Saigon, and on and on and on. Some very famous battles. Probably the most famous battle in the Bible is the Battle of Jericho. The only one that would come close is still yet to come, the Battle of Armageddon. Everybody's heard of that. But the Battle of Jericho was a very famous battle. We've, we've written and sang songs. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Here's something you may or may not think about. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the great Hall of Faith chapter, Hall of Fame, if you want to call it, where he lists all the great men and women in the Old Testament that had great faith and God recognized them. He started with Adam, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, next one should be Joshua, but Joshua's not mentioned. Next one's mentioned Rahab the harlot. Now, it does mention that the walls came down after they marched around it seven days, but it didn't mention Joshua's name like it mentioned all those other names. I've always wondered about that. Some say it's because this was God's victory. They just had to follow orders. Well, yeah, that's true, but a lot of it's like that. But don't underestimate Joshua. Not only did he, he have the same name, or Jesus had the same name as Joshua, Yeshua in the, old, in the Hebrew. Joshua began his ministry really at the Jordan River. Jesus began his ministry at the Jordan River. Joshua's job was to go and possess the land, and Jesus' job was to defeat our enemy so we could enter in his possession. Joshua stormed the gates of Jericho. Jesus and his church stormed the gates of hell. And the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against us. So 
Even though Joshua is not mentioned, uh, he was a great man, a great leader, and this is what his book is all about. So let's look at this just a moment today. The battle, first of all, the battle against believers. We are in a battle. When you become a child of God, you wear many different hats, different ways to describe you. You're a son of God. You're a saint of God. You're a servant of God. You're a steward of God. And you're a soldier in the army of the Lord. You can't be an overcomer unless you overcome. You can't get crowns unless you uh, win some conflicts. And that's really what it's about. We're, we're facing three main enemies as Christians. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We're fighting foes that we cannot see with our eyes. But we can see the results. And we can see the ones the enemy's using. But our real battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers, powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. One preacher, there was a, in a small town like Williston, there was an adult bookstore. That's just a fancy name for a pornographic shop was wanting to come into a city, a little town, and they wanted to build a building or have their shop right close to the church and right close to the school. And there was a big uproar, and there was a big lawsuit going on, and uh, they come to court, and the high-powered lawyer that was representing the adult bookstore looked up, and he saw the preacher of the little church downtown, and he went over to him with a smug look, and he said, Reverend Jones, what are you doing here? You ought to be back at your church taking care of your flock or your sheep. He said, I will, but I'm come here because I'm here to fight a wolf that's trying to destroy my sheep. Uh, sometimes you have to get out and fight. Uh, Jesus uh, told us it's a fight. It's a good fight of faith, the Bible tells us over and over again. This fight we're talking about, we're trying to possess what God has provided for his children. We're trying to take back what's been stolen, what's been rendered helpless and useless at times because we've let the enemy steal so much from us. Now, so, we're in a battle. Let's talk for just a moment about the city. We've talked about the city of Jericho. It's the lowest city on earth, uh, under, below sea level. Uh, in World War II, at the conclusion of World War II, when we defeated it, Hitler and his armies, and the Allied troops with us. Germany was left in shambles. Germany economically and just physically was left in shambles. And so they kind of divided things up in Germany. And there were four different divisions. On the western side of Germany, there was a section belonged to, uh, under the control of Great Britain and then France and then the United States. On the eastern side of Germany... Uh, was the Soviet Union. Soviet Union suffered a lot, of, a lot of hardship and casualties in World War II also. But they had the eastern side. It was more communistic and socialistic, and the western side was more democratic and capitalistic. And the people from the eastern side, the communist side, were going like crazy. There were millions of them going over to the western side where there was freedom and there was a chance to live and grow and have freedom and not be oppressed under communism. And so I think it was Khrushchev built a wall right in Berlin. Berlin was in the Soviet Union's quadrant, so to speak, and they built a wall there to keep the people from the east going over to the west. You know, there was a West Germany and an East Germany at one time. And he built the wall called the Berlin Wall. It was 13 feet high, had uh, barbed wire on top, and its soldiers guarded it. You try to get across there, and many people lost their lives trying to go for freedom. And you remember when uh, President Reagan, back in 89, he told Mr. Gorbachev at the time, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And, of course, the next year they did tear down that wall. Well, we're looking at a wall today that's very popular, very well-known in the Word of God. God's going to take down the wall of Jericho. And he's got to take down, they've got to take Jericho or they're not going to be able to get in there really and possess the land that God's given to them. It's a major hub. It's a major place. And they've got to get by this. Now, they say the walls of Jericho, archaeologists say some of them were 32 feet high. I don't know how high uh, these 
this ceiling is here, but it's pretty high. They were 20 feet thick. In some places, the, low, the, the thinnest it was was 6 feet thick. But these were massive walls. These were a, ma um, a massive fortress. Now, God said in verse 1 of our chapter, he said, everybody was barricaded behind the walls. There was nobody coming, nobody going. They knew, they had heard about the Israelites, they were familiar with them, and they're all barricaded, and uh, they know what's coming. They think they know what's coming. Uh, don't you wish the world could see the hand of God and the people of God today where they were more uh, intimidated by our God than they seem to be? Mary, Queen of Scots, who was called Bloody Mary, she said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. You think the people have much concern for the church today or believe the people of God are all that powerful anymore? Maybe not, and I'll tell you why, because the church today is becoming trying to be more like the world than being apart from the world. I've heard this many times, and it's a sad thing, but it seems to be true. People have said, whatever becomes popular and settled in the world as okay, part of the culture, will be in the church within 10 years. Instead of us being the salt and light and changing our culture, we follow along the culture. That's a very sad thing. The church, the church sees hypocrisy. I mean, they see, the world sees hypocrisy in the church. They don't fear the church. Uh, they see people that live one way on Sunday and some way else Monday through Saturday. They see those that have a form of godliness but deny the power there. So it's, it's a very uh, difficult situation. Here's the other thing we need to understand about this battle the unusual battle plan. God gave Joshua some strange battle plans. He does, did God ever ask you to do something foolish? The wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world, and the wisdom of the world is foolishness in the eyes of God. God didn't say, Joshua, gather up your biggest leaders, let's have a committee, and let's find out a way to win this battle. He didn't do that. Somebody said a committee... God doesn't work with committees except the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's the only committee. Committees aren't all that big. Somebody said one time, a camel is a horse that was designed by a committee. And that's, a, that's not a pretty picture. Committees don't, don't accomplish a lot many times. But anyway, God knew what he wanted to do, and he's going to lay out a ridiculous plan just to see if they're going to follow. Jesus did the same thing whenever it's time to feed the, the multitude with the bread and, and loaves. He had asked, Philip, before that, he said, where are we, these people are hungry. Where are we going to go get some bread to feed these people? But look what it said in John chapter 6, I believe it was, 5 and 6. Jesus lifted up his eyes, seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that we may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. God tests us a lot of times with something that seems foolish just to see what we're going to do. He already knows what he's going to do. He's trying to get somebody to trust and obey him. So here it is. I'm going to lay it out. This is the parade around Jericho. They start off with some armed men that's going to march around the city, and they're all going to do this one time for the first six days, once a day for six days. It's going to start off with some armed men, followed by seven priests blowing trumpets, followed by the priests, some other priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, followed by them, another group of men uh, carrying up the, the rear. He said this, Do not say a word while you march around. Keep your mouth shut. The only noise going to be heard is the trumpets blowing as we go around, but nobody talking. The seventh day, we'll march around it seven times, and at the end, we'll, when you hear the trumpet blast, then everybody shouts, and the walls are going to come down. God does some weird things. Some strange things, things that don't make sense. I guarantee you Joshua's been in the military all his life. It didn't make any sense to him. When God does things, he's just going to see what we think, but he's going to do it the way his way. We're going to have to line up and trust and obey him. When he wants to start a nation, he picks out an old couple that can't even have children. So I'm going to start with y'all. In the wilderness, when they're, they've been bitten by serpents, he said, put a bronze serpent on the end of a pole, lift it up, everybody looks at it. They'll be healed of the snake bites. Strange. He called uh, Jesse, Samuel went to Jesse and said, Let, 
God rejected Saul. Let me look at your son to see which one's going to be the next king. God delivered me over here. And he brought out his big strapping boys. He looked at them and said, this all you got? He said, well, I got one more young kid out there guarding the sheep. He said, bring him in here. That was David. He said, that's the one. God does not do things the way we think they should be done. Now, God knows the best way. First thing he said, when you march around once a day, remain silent. Don't even utter a word. Ooh, that's going to be hard. Here's what F.B. Meyer said. Silence is the hardest of God's commandments. We're teaching on Wednesday night the sound of silence, the different things, the roles that silence plays in our life or in the history of the church and so forth. It's a, it's a very strange, strange thing. Somebody said the most difficult thing God will ever ask you to do is to keep silent. Now, we don't have any problem with that when it comes to telling others about Jesus. We can keep our mouths shut. But when God tells us to keep our mouths shut, that's when we want to talk. One old boy said, does your wife ever give you the silent treatment? He said, yes, about five minutes. Then she gets her second wind and starts yelling again. Anyway, uh, <laughs> silence. He said, y'all be quiet. Don't say a word. Here's the second thing. God has reasons for these kind of orders and this kind of battle plan. I'm going to give you three reasons why God did it this way. It may not be these, but these are, the best. these are all three reasons God's done it in the past. First, God's sovereign. He can do what he wants to. He does not have to get an approval, doesn't have to get a vote, doesn't have to get the majority, doesn't have to get everybody to go along with it. He is sovereign. He can do what he wants. Nobody can tell him what to do. He can do it his way. If it doesn't happen the way, a lot of times when God doesn't bring an answer to us the way we think it should come, because it's not our way, we can miss it. The Jews, they've been reading the prophecies, praying for a Messiah, praying for God to send the Messiah, looking at the Word of God over and over, needing somebody to throw Rome off of their back. And God sent him. He went right by them, and they put him on a cross. They did not see the way God was doing it. They did not see and didn't understand it. Peter's uh, in jail. They've just crucified, not crucified, but cut the head off of James. And it pleased the people so much. Peter's next. And I don't know if it's going to be the next day or not, but the church was praying for Peter. And God busted him out. God's good at busting people out of jail. And he busted him out of jail. And he showed up at the place where they were praying, knocking on the door. And they didn't let him in right off the bat because they couldn't believe it was him. They could not see how God could answer their prayer so quickly. So anyway, God's sovereign. He can do what he wants to do, whether we think, think it's good or not. Number two, the reason God does that is because he loves to confound the world. He loves to do things that seem foolish because it reveals his power. He doesn't have to go along with what the world thinks is smart. I don't know what the people of Jericho are thinking when they're watching all these people march around their city. Nobody's saying a word, but somebody blows some guys are blowing a horn. Are they laughing at them? We know they're barricaded. Are they wondering what's coming next? Are they getting frightened? Are they confused? Every once in a while I'll hear sirens go by my house at night. And uh, sometimes it's one right after another, and I have to get outside and say, what in the world's going on? I hear that, woo, 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 and they go by. I don't know what they're going to, but I know one thing. It's not good. Somebody's in trouble. Somebody needs help. And they're watching this, and they're listening to people playing horns and walking around their city, and they're wondering what in the world is coming next. Does the, does the world wonder what the church is up to anymore? Or has it gotten to the place nobody pays attention to the people of God? One of my favorite of all preachers, I haven't heard him much, but I've read a lot of his books. He died in 1994. It was Leonard Ravenhill. He's a British he was an evangelist, and I love just the way he said things. I'm going to just read you some of his quotes talking about the church. He said, the world does not believe the Bible. The church does not obey the Bible. He said this, the only reason we don't have revival is because we're willing to live without revival. He said, the world is not waiting on a new definition of Christianity. They're waiting on a new demonstration of Christianity. The world has lost its power to blush over sin, and the church has lost its power to weep over sin. 
you've heard this old story before, but there was a guy putting a bar in town close to a church, kind of like the adult bookstore, and the guy uh, was putting his bar in, and many people at the church, the pastor told him, said, man, we're going to be praying God to close this thing down. We don't need that in our town. Close it down. And we're praying that way. Our whole church is praying that way. Anyway, we had a bad thunderstorm. Lightning hit the bar and burn it down. The owner of the bar took him to court. He went before the judge and he said, Judge, these people were praying for this building to go and it's gone because of their prayers. The church got up there and said, Church, you can't put that on us. It's an act of God. It's an act of nature. We had nothing to do with it. The judge said, boy, that's a tough predicament. The bar owner believes in the power of prayer, and the church believes their prayer had nothing to do with anything. <laughs> now, that's a terrible predicament. That's kind of the way the church is today. Here's the third reason God does things like this. God wants to receive the glory. That's why he can make Gideon get your army down from 32,300 about. I want to make sure you don't take the glory. Man will take the glory any chance he gets or try to. God, God gives us his love, his power, his protection, his provision, and on and on. He does not share his glory with anybody. And God says, I'm going to receive the glory. Jesus said in John 14, 13, he said, Ask what you will in my name, and I'll do that, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay. Now, I told you that Joshua's name in the Hall of Faith is not mentioned. The walls coming down was mentioned. But there's a lot of faith being exhibited by Joshua and I want to just look at four things that really show four aspects of faith that we need to always learn number one faith begins by being convinced you are in God's will look at verse two let's take it one at a time and the Lord said to Joshua see I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor he said, this is yours. This is, going to be, this is going to be victory for you. Now, I've come through many different phases of the faith movement over my life. I used to be part of the Word of Faith movement. I'm not with that now because I think they distort things. Uh, I used to believe very much when I was the first eight or ten years I was a Christian uh, Faith was more a force, and you just find the Scripture and make it, and God's got to do it because he's no respecter of person. I would say things like this, uh, or I believe things like this at that time. If I went over to the Red Sea and held out a staff, God would have it open up for me because he's no respecter of person if I got the faith. And if it doesn't open up, it's because I didn't have enough faith. God's will didn't have nothing to do with it. I was just It was almost like I was just p picking out a Scripture and pointing things out and doing this and that. And if I did it and stood on it, God's got to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. That is not biblical faith. It's kind of like the girl missionary came to the church, and she was really enthralled with this missionary. And, and after on the way home, she said, I would like to write that missionary and just stay in touch with them. And uh, her mama said, well, you can write them. They would like to hear from you. But let me just warn you, they probably won't answer you back because they're very busy. They go, I just don't want you to get your feelings hurt thinking, looking for an answer because they may not answer you back, but it's certainly okay for you to write them. She said, okay. So the little girl wrote the missionary, and this was the letter. She wrote, uh, dear so-and-so, I want to keep in touch with you. I want you to know I'm praying for you, and I'm not expecting an answer. So a lot of times that's the way a lot of people <laughs> pray. When you pray, faith begins. You've got to be convinced that this is God's will. God's, God wants this. It's, it's in his word. He's confirmed it. He's spoken it to you. You believe you're in the, in the will of God. We're not just uh, trying to hold God to do things as our errand boy. Elon Musk, if he was to come here today and write out a million dollar check and give everybody in here a million dollar check, say, I could handle that, couldn't you? Well, it's no good until you cash it or deposit it. You can carry it around in your pocket the rest of your life, and it's not doing you any good. You can put a frame around it hanging up in your room. million dollars. You've got to cash it. You've got to deposit it. You've got to do something with it. And that's the way it is with Christians. God's given us a lot of, a lot of checks. Most of them haven't been cashed. 
Some of them been lost. <laughs> Some ain't got the check no more. Anyway, so faith always has to begin with the will of God or, or believing this is the will of God. God's revealed his will and his word and it, it applies to your situation, not just taken out of context and trying to use it against God. Number two, faith is shown by obedience. Look at verse 3 through 5. Now watch this. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Okay. Uh, it shall come to pass when they make a long blast from the, with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. Okay, faith is shown by obedience. I always, my concept of faith was I, I have to get in my mind, doubts are all removed, I've made positive confessions, I've done this and that, and, and that's my faith, it's up here, it's, it's at the very peak, and whenever I got that kind of faith, then the answer's going to come. No. That's not, that's, that's nothing wrong with some of that, but that's, that's distorted once again. A lot of times your faith has to be demonstrated. He told them to march. He told them to keep their mouths shut. He told them to shout. He told them to do this, all these different things. Faith does not mean that you don't have some doubts in your head. But when you have faith and you have some doubts, you act on your faith and not your doubts, uh, in spite of your doubts. Most of us... Uh, for example, every time Jesus asked somebody to do something, usually it would be like this before he healed them. Stretch out your hand. Go fill up those water pots. Go wash in the pool. Take up your bed. Go home. Go do this, whatever. It's a demonstration. Faith is seen. It's not just something in your head. You've got a lot of belief up there in your head. No, it's usually you act on what you really believe. So they had to act on it or they wouldn't have seen anything. Number three, faith patiently waits for the answer. Look at verse 11 through 14. We haven't read this yet. Okay. A uh, house is full of all good things which did not fill, hewn out wells. Am I on the right? I don't know if I, I don't know what I've read, what I may have told. Well, let me read it to you out of this. If it says it in here, I'm going to be in trouble. Uh, 11 through 14 said this. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the reward, those in the back, came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp, so they did six days. So what he's saying is this. They made one lap around there, the priest blowing the horns. At the end of that lap, they went back to camp. And nothing happened. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Now, if, here's the way most of us think. Well, if my faith is working by, by day six, I ought to see some cracks in that wall. I'll have been a block or two falling off by now. I, I've, I've got, we think that God's doing things on, on the basis of our faith as we do it. Usually you have to be completely obedient and the answer doesn't come until afterwards. Naaman told, uh, or Elisha told Naaman, you go dip in the Jordan River. You got leprosy, you got to dip seven times. Now if he's like us, he dipped three times and say, well, half of the leprosy ought to be gone by now. And we think it's does like that. No, God's looking for complete obedience. And a lot of times the answer is not going to come until it's all said and done. Okay, and here's the, the final thing about faith. Faith puts God first. They carried the Ark of the Covenant every time they marched around that city. God has to be the center of really our prayers and our faith. There's a lot of things we can ask or try to demand God to do that's based on our own selfish lust. James said, don't think you're going to receive anything. God's got to be at the forefront for God to be glorified, for that we're in the will of God, this and that. 
That's, that's what faith is built on. Now, here's something that I'm going to spend. I usually would have put some of this at the first of the sermon. I'm going to wind the sermon down, and I put it back at the back this time. Why is God doing this? Why is God doing this to destroy this land, this people, with these silly instructions and this battle plan? I read this this week, and I still don't understand it. Have you ever heard of a squatter? Uh, A squatter is something different than a trespasser. A squatter is, here's the definition, someone who begins to inhabit a piece of property or land without the legal right to do so. A trespasser, if somebody trespasses on your property, you can call the cops and they come get them or run them off. But if it's a squatter, somebody that's staying on your property, say you got a, an abandoned building or something, or you got a lot of property, they've been camping here or, or something in some building you've got, and they've been living there. They're squatting. You can't call the police and go tell them, run them out of here. You have to take it through the civil courts. And I still don't understand how this works like this, but there are laws in each state's laws are different for squatters. If they've been there a long time or if they've even paid some of the taxes or done something like that, you're going to have a hard time getting them out. You may not be able to get them out. That doesn't even make sense. Florida, I think the squatter law is seven years. But if they've been doing that. But anyway, what I'm telling you, People of Jericho have been squatting on God's property for about almost 700 years. And God said, this eviction is coming. Eviction is coming. And that's what this is all about. Because I've given this to Abraham and his children. He gave them that almost 700 years ago. And God said, it's time for y'all to take it. Now, here's what a lot of people struggle with. And I've struggled with it too at times. I don't always know the easy answer. How come God can tell his people to go in there and wipe out men, women, children, and animals? He did this all throughout their time of possessing the land of Canaan. What is your answer for that? Let me give you some answers that are not correct. Here's where, here's where how some people answer that. Why would God, a God that's supposed to be a God of love, wipe out even little innocent children? One answer, some people say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's a lot different in the New Testament. Old Testament, he's mean and judgmental and, and things like that. But in the New Testament, he's love and grace and peace. That ain't the answer. Read the book of Revelation. That'll scare you. When God has enough, it's going to be enough. So that's not the answer. God hasn't changed and gotten soft over the years. And now, he was mean back then, now he's a lot kinder, like an old grandfather. Mm -mm. Here's another answer that's not good. I just don't understand why God does that. It's a mystery. Don't have an answer for you. Well, that ain't very much help to somebody that's really bothered by that. Uh, You need to be able to do more than that. I've heard unbelievers say this, I couldn't ever believe there's really a God of love out there that does something like this. And here's something that really... Is one of my pet peeves. I've got many pet peeves, but this is one of them. Unbelievers that use that excuse, they say this. I can't believe in a God, if there's really a God up there, to allow all this suffering and all this evil in this world. I just can't believe that if there's, if there's a God up there, he wouldn't allow that. And then when God wipes out some, I can't believe God would wipe out all this evil and all this stuff. They don't, they play on both sides of the coin. I heard a an apologist talking to a bunch of college kids one time, and he said, and they were given all their reasons why they don't believe there's a God. He said, let me ask you, if I can prove that there's a God, if Jesus is your Savior, will you give him your heart? He said, no. He said, well, then you don't have a head problem. You've got a heart problem. And that's where a lot of people say, I just don't, I can't figure God out. Let me tell you something. God, this isn't the first time God's done this. In Genesis chapter 6, he wiped out everybody except Noah and his family. He didn't say, all the kids swim off, it's going to be okay. No, he said, kids, you, you too. 
when he came to Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't say, some of y'all get to stay behind. He wiped them all out except Lot and his family and Lot's wife didn't even make it. So people struggle with that. I just can't understand it. Here's how some people try to deal with that. Well, I don't understand a God that promotes genocide. This is not genocide. Genocide is when you're trying to wipe out a race or an ethnic group because you hate that group. God never hated anybody. When he blessed Israel, he was, he was going to make them a great nation so through them they could bless all the world. God always loved the whole world. He's not trying to wipe out these group, this group because he just don't like that group or that race or that ethnic group or anything like that. There was a lot of ethnic groups in Canaan. So it's not genocide. And I'll tell you this, God even judges his own people when they get into sin. The reason God does it, not because of somebody's nationality, he does it because of their sin, their depravity. That's why he does it. Number two, he doesn't do it. A lot of people say this, and that's not right, all those Jewish people wiping out them poor people in Jericho. That's a massacre. They're being a bully. They, they accuse the United States of being a big bully on other countries and things like that. That's not what's going on here. The Jews have been in slavery for 400 years. And when they got out of slavery, they wandered around as nomads in the desert for 40 years. They don't have a bunch of weapons. They don't have a, a, a bunch of chariots and iron things. And things. They're not like that. That's a ragtag army. This is God doing this. This is not because they're a big bully picking over on the poor old Jericho. Let me say this. I won't go into details. The Canaanites and Jericho is one of them are the most depraved people on the face of the earth. They are child sacrifice with nothing. They, I read, some historians said that they would offer their children for sacrifice and they would just beat the drums so they couldn't hear them screaming. Bestiality, homosexuality, incest, anything goes. The reason anything goes because they're idolatry. They did that to get to please their gods who would send some rain on their crops. So that anything went. This is not just an isolated people, a couple of people doing things behind closed doors. It permeated their whole culture. And this idolatry's always got demons behind it somewhere. That's why God said in Genesis, I got a man's thoughts are on evil continually. I got to wipe it out and start over. And that's really what he's doing here. He said, I got to wipe the whole thing clean. All of them. Now, Jericho was not Walnut Grove on Little House on the Prairie. I can promise you that. It was a military stronghold, well fortified, and this culture was absolutely perverted beyond anything you can imagine. That's why God says you can't sit there and coincide with them. They got to go. Now let me wind this down. I'm going to give me about two, more, two or three more minutes. Here's the reason. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into the di to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself. That's the scripture I wanted to show you. They're not going in there overpower. He said, you're going, against, you're going to be on the short end of the totem pole. You're going against nations that are much greater than you are, cities great and fortified up to heaven. They look like these walls went all the way to heaven. There ain't no way we can break through that. Here's another thing. In, in, in Deuteronomy 20, 16 through 18, listen to this. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. He said, I'm going to tell you about the people you're going to be going up against. You shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Nothing. But you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you. Lest, and here's why, he says, you've got to wipe it all out lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods. See, it's all tied to their, it permeates their whole culture. And you sin against the Lord your God. He said, you've got a clean house there. You can't just leave parts of it. And we're going to see when we get through the end of Joshua, they left parts. 
and boy, what a mess it made. So he said that. That's what you're going up. Now let me show you uh, what's going on. I'm going to finish it up. Genesis chapter 15, 13 through 16. Now he's talking to Abram here, Abraham, and here's what he said. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. He's talking about Egypt now, slavery in Egypt. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve will I judge. God said, I'll deal with Egypt afterwards, after they come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. This is Abraham. But in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He said, I've had it up to here with the Amorites, but it ain't there yet. Now, this thing of destroying these people is a picture of justice and mercy. And I'm going to show you why it's both. The people of Jericho were Amorites. They were not Jerichoans. They were <laughs> Amorites. Here's what God said to Abram. He said, I'm going to tell you this about your, your people, my people, the Jews. You're going to go into slavery for 400 years. Just put you on notice for that. The Amorites had 400 years to turn from their idolatry, but they didn't, and the clock just went tick, 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 tick. God said it's not there yet. And then when they crossed over the Red Sea, Rahab, when they went sent the spies into Jericho to check it out, Rahab said, we've heard of the God that delivered y'all through the Red Sea. They'd heard about that was 40 years ago. So it's not only been centuries, now it's about four decades God's been showing mercy to them. Tick, 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 clock ticking on these people. When they crossed the Jordan, when the priests went through and the Jordan River divided. In, Act, in, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, it says, The first thing is the people of the Amorites heard that they'd crossed the Jordan. Now it's down to days. Tick, 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 clock's ticking. Ten days, these people hadn't, they knew what was coming. They didn't make a move. They just barricaded themselves, ready to fight it out. They watched them walk around once a day, wondering. Tick, tick, tick. Clock's ticking on them. And on the seventh day, when they shouted and the walls came down, that was judgment day. We just had, last, I think it was last week, Groundhog Day. And next week we got Valentine's Day. This is Judgment Day. God said, it ain't there yet. He said, I'm full. Their time's up. Their time's up. Everybody in here is moving towards Judgment Day. You say, why would you even say something like that? If I didn't say that, I'm going to have to answer to God. If I don't tell you if you're not part of God's covenant, covered in his blood, born again into his family, your days are numbered. It's ticking. Just like the Amorites. It went for centuries, God showed mercy. Decades, God showed mercy. Down to days, showing them once again. No, they would not leave their God and repent and follow the true God. God said, okay, it's up. And it's going to be up for everybody one day. It, doesn't it might be today, it might be decades from now, but it's going to be up. I want you to stand with me. Would you bow your heads and pray? This was an unusual battle. Let me ask you this. Clock's ticking. For people that play church, clock's ticking. People that say, I don't believe in God, clock's ticking on them. People that's chasing their other gods in their life, clock's ticking. 
it's always ticking. You're headed to judgment or you're headed to the arms of a Savior who made a way for you. Jesus made a way on a cross. You don't have to go that route. You do not. And God's mercy has been given to all of us. But some say, no, I'll take my chances. Anybody here today, you're not sure if you're ready to meet God. You don't know where you stand with God, but you're not ready to meet him. If you would, raise your hand if you're here today. Anybody here says, I don't know. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm right. Anybody? All right, so if there's nobody, then that means everybody here is pretty confident they're ready to meet God. Or they're going to be like the Amorites. I'll take my chances. God help us. He's a God of mercy, but he is a God of justice. Judgment Day came to Jericho, and it comes to all. Thank God Jesus took our judgment, and now we have mercy extended to us. Heavenly Father, I pray today, Lord, help us to learn from this battle. This is a battle that belonged to you. I pray for everyone here today. They don't know you, God. Don't let them leave here without your convicting power on their heart and their life. I pray, Father, in Jesus' holy name, open our eyes, open our hearts. This is not a mind thing. This is a heart issue. And I pray every heart and life I'll see in heaven one day because everybody here has been redeemed. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you.